welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. This week, we had another fantastic talk on procedural sedation and analgesia from one of our PGY3 residents, Alicia Skelton. Jenny and I had a detailed discussion about the different agents for PSA back in podcast 104, so go back and check that out because we're not going to dive deeply into each of the agents today. This week, we're going to talk about the nitty-gritty of PSA as well as discussing some of the pitfalls. Alicia started by going through some of the things that you need to make sure you do before you get started with the actual procedure. Much of this comes from Ruben Strayer's PSA checklist, and we'll include a link to that in the show notes. First, let's start with the pre-PSA assessment. The ample mnemonic is a good way to remember some of the things you want to ask. A for allergies, M for medications, P for past medical history, L for last meal, and E for events causing the ED visit. The timing of sedation based on the last meal is controversial. Many hospitals still have guidelines saying to wait six hours from the last solid food intake, but this is neither evidence-based nor feasible in the emergency department. ASEP has a level B recommendation stating that PSA should not be delayed based on fasting times. Personally, I think as long as the patient doesn't have a mouthful of food currently, you're good to go. In your pre-PSA assessment, it's a good idea to perform an airway evaluation. Can the patient fully open their mouth? What can you see in the posterior pharynx when they say, ah, do they have an indicator for difficult BVM like a beard or facial trauma? Do they have indicators of a challenging airway anatomy like a short neck? Intubation during PSA is extremely rare, but it's a good idea to be prepared. Next, pre-procedural preparation. Select your analgesic and sedation medications and calculate your doses. Set up all your monitoring equipment, including your cardiac monitor, end-tidal CO2, and your pulse ox. Make sure your airway equipment is close at hand and that you have an LMA and a BVM ready to go. In addition to your PSA medications, you should also have a paralytic on standby, as well as potential reversal agents like flumazenil for benzodiazepines and naloxone for opiates. Finally, you should consider the patient's disposition. If they're going to be going home, who's going home with them, since they're not going to be able to make it home on their own, and they definitely can't drive themselves home. Let's move from the pre-procedural sedation and analgesia prep to some of the pitfalls. Alicia started off by discussing pitfalls with different medications. We covered much of this in Podcast 104, so again, go back and check that one out for all the details. The main point, though, is to understand what side effects can occur with different medications and to be preferred to treat them or pick a different agent. Alicia touched on a great article on Academic EM entitled Incidents of Adverse Events in Adults Undergoing Procedural Sedation in the Emergency Department, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. This article was reviewed on Rebel EM, and we'll drop a link to that blog post in the show notes, which reviews all of the high points. The article demonstrated that serious adverse events like laryngospasm, intubation, hypotension, hypoxia, and aspiration were extremely rare. This is likely because of the measures we've taken to prepare, and that avoids these events. The article also goes on to reveal which agents are most likely to be associated with different adverse events. The combination of benzodiazepine, typically midazolam, with an opiate seems to be particularly likely to cause issues. That combo had the highest rates of apnea, bradycardia, hypotension, and hypoxia. Pitfall number two is forgetting the analgesia component. With the exception of ketamine, our agents, the common agents we use, don't provide both sedation and analgesia. So whether it be a tomidate, a benzodiazepine, or propofol, you've got to provide adequate analgesia separately. Pitfall number three is relying on the pulse ox alone. 
The debate over the necessity of end tidal CO2 has gone on for more than a decade. There's no high-level evidence that has clearly demonstrated that the addition of end tidal CO2 to the pulse ox leads to a lower adverse event rate, but much of that is due to the rare nature of any of these events. Pulse ox obviously measures oxygenation, but the number we see can drastically lag behind the clinical situation. With the application of nasal O2 or a non-rebreather, patients will passively oxygenate even when they're apneic. Entitled CO2, on the other hand, gives you an immediate assessment of the patient's clinical scenario. If the patient becomes apneic, you'll immediately see the waveform change. What this means is earlier recognition of apnea. Now, you can monitor this by just simply watching the patient's chest rise, but entitled CO2 does seem to be a bit easier for picking up the apneic event earlier. Pitfall number four is reaching for the BVM too early. When a patient does experience one of those rare respiratory depression events or frank apnea, we often reach for the BVM, but it's not always necessary, and aggressive bagging has its own issues associated with it like gastric insufflation. Instead, we can start with some basic maneuvers. First, stop any meds that are going in. It's pretty basic, but it's important. Then we can do what Rich Levitan calls the oops maneuver. Oxygen on, pull the mandible forward, and sit the patient up. If you don't already have a nasal cannula on, Throw on high flow, which will passively oxygenate the patient. Sit the patient up to 20 to 30 degrees, and then pull the mandible forward by placing your fingers behind the mandible. These actions open the patient's airway, relieving obstruction, which is often the issue. The pull the mandible step also provides a stimulus for breathing. If this doesn't work, you can place a nasal airway, consider reversal meds, and then consider BVM or placing an LMA for oxygenation and ventilation. Ultimately, if none of these work, you can push a paralytic, pass the tube, and then wait for the patient's meds to wear off, and then let them wake up and extubate them. But again, this is a very rare scenario. There's a brief view of procedural station and analgesia with some pitfalls. Let's hit the take-home points. Number one, always perform a full pre-procedural station and analgesia evaluation, including an airway assessment. Time of last meal shouldn't delay your sedation based on the best available evidence. Number two, always do a complete setup, including consideration of different agents. Dosage calculations should be done in advance, preparation of airway equipment, as well as your reversal agents and a paralytic. Number three, PSA serious adverse events are rare, but you should still always be prepared for them. Careful agent selection and dosing can help prevent many of the issues, but know your outs. And number four, if apnea develops, do some basic maneuvers before you reach for the BVM or laryngoscope. Remember, oops, as in, oops, my patient went apneic. Oxygen on, pull the mandible forward, and sit the patient up. This fixes the vast majority of problems. Well, that's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net. We've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. We'll have a core post up on Wednesday and a journal update up on Thursday. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, follow us on Google+, and on Twitter, where our handle is at core underscore EM. Thanks, and see you all next week.